Four in 10 U.S. adults say dealing with climate change should be a top priority for uh, President Biden and Congress. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today is May 7th, 2022. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And together, on this Mother's Day weekend, we are the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yar! Lucas, how are you today? Yeah, I'm pretty good on this rainy, cold, miserable spring day. Mariah is stuck inside, you know. You know, I have an episode. I'm sorry to say this, people will be angry at me, but it's been a very cold and rainy spring in the Northeast thus far. I've generally been okay with it because I've been immobile, stuck in the house. And it's easier (laughs) to be stuck in the house when it's cold and rainy outside as opposed to beautiful spring. But uh, I have a feeling in a week or so, I will get the green light to be more mobile again. So maybe, uh, maybe I'll bring some good spring weather for everybody. Well, Lucas, uh, I know, I think you wanted to start with a little bit of a quick tribute or dedication. So I'm going to turn it over to you for a second. Yeah. So in case, um, some of you are in the New York energy scene and you haven't heard, um, I'll go ahead and share my screen here. Uh, Rachel from, uh, Weldam has actually passed away um from cancer so mira posted this on um linkedin so it's a good place for you to go and um express your grief like i did um at the news so she ran the small business she helped run the small business energy efficiency program for con ed in new york city so many many people know her you can see like 100 and something 18 people commented and 134 people are, are showing their um their love on here so um you know, yeah, it's it's just kind of a shock. You know, my my post was just like I'm just shocked. I, I don't know what to think about it. I don't know what to do. So, yeah, just yeah, you can see Caitlin's heartbroken, and even Donna Baird commented on this. And so, yeah, if you're newer, you know, just I recommend posting something on here and and talking about it. Yeah, the post we're looking at is from on LinkedIn from our colleague. Uh, Mira Lita Tandon, uh, T-A-N-D-O-N. And uh, you, you work together, uh, not here at Milton, but at Con Ed together. That's right. Yeah, she was a service provider for our group. So she helped us execute the, the small business energy efficiency incentives. And so they were our contractor for that. And she was just, she was just awesome. She was very good at her job. She was very dedicated. She cared about the mission, you know, and um she was also a pleasure to be around, you know, like after work and just talking about stuff. And she was so full of life. Um, so we'll remember her and we'll continue the fight that she was she was leading. You know, uh, I'm sorry, Lucas, for your loss and to the loss of the, really the, the Northeast uh, clean and sustainability community. Um, there's just too many stories of the good people dying too young and um I don't think we have her official uh, obit yet, but I would recommend to people who just want to do a little bit of something. She passed away of cancer. You know, uh, obviously the American Cancer Society is doing incredible work to help make survivability of a myriad type of cancers, uh, you know, higher probability. So, you know, we'd recommend American Cancer Society or really any, any charity that is close to you and close to your heart for doing better for society. Um, please feel free to either make a donation, but um, we're certainly thinking about her right now. 
Yeah, that would be that would be a good idea. So thank you for that. Well, in her honor, I think we have to continue the fight, and that's why we're here. Um, you know, it's it's you know, we definitely through COVID, through the Ukraine war, through all these things, uh, we have to kind of keep continuing the mission, which is making people understand how important clean tech and sustainability is going to be for our lives and our children's lives. So let's keep fighting the good fight. And, um, you know, before we go into it, we'll just do our quick disclaimer that what Lucas and I are going to talk about today, these views and opinions are those of ourselves solely and not any organization we are associated or affiliated with. Uh, and for any public companies or entities that have any type of marketable securities that we will be discussing, uh, please do your homework and contact uh, a certified investment representative uh, before making a decision. Do not rely on anything that we say for making investment decisions. Yeah, I was going to bring up the the QuantumScape battery, right? So if you don't know, QuantumScape released their solid state battery. No, we're not going to talk about it, but you can check it out if you want. And that is not a recommendation to buy the stock. <laughs> no, no, I'm so, you're right. I'm surprised you did not have that article. Uh, yeah. Transparency, I'm a, I am a stakeholder in a friendly competitor to QuantumScape for Solid State. So um, I'm hoping Solid State as an industry takes off. And uh, uh, obviously, I've got a vested interest in it. But, uh, you know, that's something maybe we can discuss on our next article, a little bit, our next, next episode, a little bit more in detail. Yeah, the, the performance numbers are just awesome. So and before we get into cool. articles, I'm a little disappointed because uh, it's Saturday afternoon. Uh, it's rainy. And I thought it's finally time, first time in months that we're actually going to be celebrating our beer of the week. And so I've got a Goose Island IPA. This could be the first, this could be the first uh, beer I've had since my leg surgery a few months oh. ago. So I'm enjoying every minute of this Goose Island IPA. It tastes <laughs> I am not an IPA fan, but I am converted as of today. Yeah, sadly, I'm drinking a uh, gin and tonic without the gin. So... I'll just have to pretend like I'm drinking beer with you. You're making me feel like a lush, but that's okay. <laughs> One beer. Uh, it looks like you want me to go first? Yeah, yeah. Really love my articles today. Um, and they're a little bit more policy-driven than like actual new technology, but I think there's a lot to catch up on, uh, given geopolitics uh, rearing its ugly head in so many different ways. So let's start with some good news. April 28th, Michelle Lewis from electric.co. The U.S. generated a record 18% of its electricity from wind and solar in March. This is fantastic. This is really great news. And here's something really why it's great news. And this chart says a lot of it. Just going back to 2015, so going back seven years, that number would have been on average 5.7%. So we went from 5.7% to 18%. I believe last year, uh, the number was, I don't have, oh, 10%. No, sir, that's a global number. Uh, last year, I think it was uh, a little bit under 18%. So it seems like March is a really good time for having both wind and solar, probably given um, just natural wind flows and you know sunlight hitting the southern tier of the United States in a, in a much better and more uh, powerful way. So that's the good news. So the article also says that I think right now, globally in 2021, 10% of global electricity was from those sources as well. So I think that sounds fantastic. And that was according to Ember's Global Electricity Review. That sounds fantastic. But the bottom of this article goes into it, interviewing a host of people and says, we need to be at consistently 20% by 2025. And if not, even a little bit higher. 
and that's a global number. That's not um, that is not a U.S. number. And seventy percent by twenty fifty. So that all sounds well and good. Twenty percent number. And think about it. In three years, there is a lot of solar coming online. We know there's a lot of offshore wind coming online. We know there's other wind, but we have to get to twenty percent. These are numbers that we can't fall behind now because it just exacerbates our catching up by twenty fifty. So I did a little bit of research offline. You know, many of you know that we are big fans of the Princeton Net Zero Review that came out in December of 2020, but actually the final report only came out last October. And it, I believe, talks about the United States. We need to be, we can be on course based on several scenarios in the United States to be at 85 to 90% wind and solar by 2050. So we can be on course if everything goes right from a policy standpoint, execution, financing standpoint, I'm starting to worry a little bit about the midterm elections this year and the 2024 presidential elections in terms of clean policy. Mm. And that really set us back. Mm. But I thought this is great news, but I don't think we could celebrate it so emphatically just quite yet. It's just a nice little breather. Let's have a toast, but at least let's keep marching forward. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to talk about this some more in my articles, too. So just to be clear, this is energy, right? This is total energy. Um, We're not talking about instantaneous power. We're not talking about instantaneous demand here. Um, You know, as we know, the solar and wind story is a little complex as to when it's on. So we'll get into this some more. Yeah, good point. Thanks for clarifying that. um, But this is great. Yeah, It's funny because it says 18% of its electricity, right? So that definitely implies people, it's plug and play 18%. But that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I just want to be clear about exactly what they're stating, right? So people don't get confused. I think there's a lot of confusion over these percent numbers. Because yeah, then, you know, we'll yeah. look at California and they're at 97%. How, how is it 97% and 18? Well, the 97 is the instantaneous number. That's why. So, Right. right. And I think we'll, we'll talk about that because your California story is going to be really good. Yeah. But- Anyways, we're trending in the right way, which is great, but long way to go. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers to that. Cheers to that with my Goose Island IPA. (laughs) Goose Island, is that that Pacific Northwest? No, Fort Collins, Colorado. Oh. There you go. There you go. There's no islands in Colorado. What the? No, it's a Goose Island. So maybe there's just a small little island on a lake somewhere just for the geese. Maybe, yep. Uh, next article, this is actually a, a research report, not necessarily an article. Pew Research Center, we all know, is one of the great objective um, surveyors, if you will, and um, publishers of data. So this is from Earth Day on 2022. For Earth Day, comma, key facts about Americans' view of climate change and renewable energy, uh, published by Katherine Sh- uh, Schaefer. The data in here is actually published from, I believe, January of this year. So this is not a survey that was done in April, but they're publishing it. Um, we're going to go through it, but in general, there's a lot of good news in here and there's a lot of news we got to still address with. So I'm going to hit a couple key points. Number one, uh, which Lucas has up right now, four in 10 U.S. adults say dealing with climate change should be a top priority for uh, President Biden and Congress. Now, obviously, again, this is before the Ukraine crisis, inflation, uh, you know, gas costs going up. But I think generally from a trend standpoint, it's strong. 42% of U.S. adults is great. Obviously, driven mainly by Democrats and those who lean Democrat, 65% versus only 11% of those who lean or are Republican. Uh, And again, youth, of course, is driving this. 
If you're 18 to 29, 54% should be believe it should be a priority, and the rest falls a little bit from there. So I think that's pretty strong in its own right. Let's go down to number the second one. This one I think is very key. Three quarters of Americans say that human activity, such as burning of fossil fuels, contributes to climate change. At least some, 46% says it's a great deal. So if you take 46% say it's a great deal, 29% says some contribution, that's 75% of Americans surveyed are saying that we are contributors to climate change. This is finally the recognition that we need for policymakers, academics, and scientists to go out there and feel the strength of courage to justify doing very, very, um, getting out there in front of policy and funding for new clean technology because the American people know we're contributors. And deep down, they know that they need to save the planet for generations to have. Even, even half of conservative Republicans. Look at that. See? Yeah, of course they do. It's like, we know it, but I don't know if I want to do something about it now. Well, number, <laughs> uh, number, we're going to do number three, four, five, and seven. Three, Americans generally view policies aimed at reducing the effects of climate change as good for the environment, but they are split on whether they help their economy. And you know what? I, I think this is a very justifiable, I really like this, uh, this statement, because everyone knows we need to help the economy, but it's also very hard to tr- turn off a coal plant, which employs 200 people in a community, and replace yeah. it with solar farms, which once the solar farm is constructed, only employs a handful of people. Yeah. So we, have, we know that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, natural gas plants, same thing. They employ a lot of people after construction. Um, you know, you know, during construction, they do. After construction, not as many. So, and of course, people debate whether or not natural gas is a, really a solution for climate change. Number four, when it comes to specific policies, this, I love this one. 69% of U.S. adults favor the United States taking steps to become carbon neutral by 2050. That is releasing no more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than is removed. So, you know, again, we can talk about political splits, but the American people are recognizing this. Of course, in trying times like a high inflation environment now, they think more about their personal wallets and getting, you know, making sure their cereal for their kids is not too expensive. We understand these things, but generally... I think people are going to really understand that it's good for the economy in the long run when you have less climate volatility. And the only way to address that is to tackle climate change right now. Uh, let's Number five and number seven will do. About seven in 10 Americans prioritize developing alternative energy, such as wind and solar, over expanding the production of oil, coal, and natural gas. Are you listening, Shell? Are you listening, BP? You guys have the resources to do what's right for the environment. And the American people and the global citizens across the world feel exactly the same way. Uh, last one, there's a couple I'm skipping here because uh, not that I'm trying to take away from them, but just want to hit some key ones. Number seven, three quarters of Americans support U.S. participating in international efforts <laughs> of climate change. You know, we keep talking about how we're becoming more insular and we're walking away from, from the world community, except when there's a crisis, Americans want us to step up. We're stepping up in Ukraine. We stepped up back in 2004 during the horrible tsunami in the Southeast Asia. We step up when it's needed, and we have to consider climate crisis to be as much of a tragedy as a war and a natural disaster that's really in your face. So I encourage people to take a look at this whole article. There's a lot of good stuff. I just wanted to highlight some key ones. But again, the perception is changing, and this should be in front of policymakers so that they can be confident in making those tough decisions the fun climate change. Research. Yeah, I agree. I agree. This is what, you know, they needed to hear. And 
I, I like this question too. The 2050 number to me is achievable. I don't think 2035 is. So I think 2035 is too aggressive of a target, but I just, I just worry that people are like, Oh, 2050 is way far off. We don't have to do anything. No, no, no. 20, 2050 is achievable. If we start right now, that's, I think that's the message um, I would give to policymakers. It doesn't mean, Oh, fine. 2050. We don't have to do anything. No, we have to start now. So um, yeah, this is great to see the American public can, you know, see through disinformation <laughs> on how, uh, you know, no, we're not causing climate change. So, um, and it's, it's interesting too, to see that young people, young, you know, young and uh, democratic or leaning democratic people are most engaged on this issue. So, and they should be, because they're the ones that are going to have to pay the price. Right. So. And for the Gen Xers that are listening right now uh, to this podcast, if you think this uh, 2050 is far away, just imagine, okay, we just celebrated or are celebrating the 35th anniversary of U2's album, The Joshua Tree, right? And all my friends are like, I can't believe that's 35 years ago. I can't believe Top Gun, the movie was, you know, almost 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Guess what, folks? Time moves very quickly. And mm-hmm. again, if we don't start addressing this stuff in scale right now. That means our catch up and ramp up is going to be more expensive 10, 15 years from now, as opposed to spending that dollar today. So it, it, it happens very fast. We have to be... 10, 15 years ahead of the game right now. So I thought this was a great survey. It really put me in a good mood. Um, those are my two optimistic articles. Now we're going to go into <laughs> So this is everyone in clean tech sector is talking about this right now. And even in the, in the world of politics, this particular article from CNN Politics as of yesterday, May 6th, Ellen Nelson, solar energy projects are grinding to a halt in the U.S. among investigations into parts coming from quote-unquote China. And what's happening here, and this happens in many industries, obviously we have either tariffs or we're, we're worried about anti-dumping from China. So what happens is manufacturing then shifts to other quote-unquote friendlier countries like Southeast Asia, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, et cetera, Malaysia. What's happening is though, there's a good chance that many of these parts in products being manufactured in those nations are coming and being sourced from China. So in March, I believe the Department of Commerce launched an investigation into this I think there is one particular company that's truly being investigated. They're the Hoshine Silicon Industry Company in China. And the reason they're being investigated is they may actually be using forced labor of the Uyghur population. And I hope mm-hmm. I said that correctly. Mm-hmm. So what, what I liked about this article is it did a little bit of a deep dive into the political spectrum. Whereas, of course, nobody wants to stop solar development right now. And the Solar Energy Industry Association in the U.S., is talking about the fact that 318 projects are grinding to a halt right now uh, and because it can't get the PVs that they need. At the same time, Democrats and Republicans, even from those Southwest uh, states where a lot of these projects are happening, are recognizing the fact that something needs to be addressed. But again, just like maybe the timing, maybe the way that this um, investigation was rolled out with no lead time given to our solar energy project developers is causing a grinding of a halt and it may lead to job layoffs which we don't want to happen right now as people are saying signs of recession are coming. We need these projects to continue, but it has to be done in a way, uh, according to people in this article, uh, that just gave the solar developers a little bit of a chance to keep developing. But I think this is very controversial. You know, I have a box here that's empty about my own personal commentary because we can't be buying product from China. That is, 
involved in, you know, any type of forced labor or, you know, uh, unethical labor activity. We need to be above board. Of course, we're going to be buying products for overseas. Um, I should say from full transparency sake, I am CEO of a company that's going to be coming to market with a solar panel vetted concrete mason block. And, you know, we're going to be worried about our own purchasing, of course, like the rest of the solar industry. So, but I'm bringing this, I'm taking my CEO hat off for a minute. And I'm really bringing this up as an American who really wants to see the solar supply chain shift back to America. Even if it's more automated and job creation isn't that significant, it still would be more significant than sourcing everything from overseas. There are companies that are operating at least some sort of PV final assembly here. I think, uh, you know, First Solar is operating in my home state in Ohio. They're actually doing full-on solar manufacturing. We have to be smart about this, and we have to penalize those that are using unethical production means, including forced labor. So very tough situation. I think there's going to be a lot of debate about this. Um, Lucas, I was thinking that I'd really like to bring a guest on that could talk about how to reshore solar manufacturing in the U.S. So let's do some homework maybe and find if we can find such a guest. Yeah, maybe somebody from the Commerce Department or something. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. This is a really difficult, really complex decision to make. There's so many give and takes here. There's, there's, you know, the need for clean energy offset by price, right? Offset by local economic development, offset by tariffs and slave labor. And, oh, man, what a giant web this is. And, you know, I don't, I don't have the answer to this, right? So... You, you make a good point. We got to debate these issues and we got to flesh them out and, and see if we can resolve some of these give and takes and turn them into win-wins. I mean, that's just what I would recommend. Right. And you know, this is a, uh, I feel like my articles are being spun together like a Larry David episode of Seinfeld where, you know, we talked about a few minutes ago, if that's great that we're at 18% renewable generation in March in order to get to our 70% target or the Princeton target, 85, 90%, we need to be putting more solar up today than we do three years from now. It has to go up today. So for 318 projects, if that number is legitimate, uh, grinding to a halt right now, that's going to screw us down the road. So we should have been thinking about this five years ago. We should have been thinking about reshoring solar manufacturing. There's mm-hmm. first talk of it. I know Obama uh, administration did a few good things. Now it has to scale up even faster. And I want to be a willing participant of that activity. Yeah, people will bring up Solyndra, you know, but they, they won't. Solyndra could be turned purple. Solyndra <laughs> was the only loss in that department. The whole portfolio, yeah. It's loss. It was less than, I think, 2%. It's less than the average commercial loan portfolio loss of your neighborhood commercial bank. Yeah. So, in fact, that program was way more successful, but the loss by Solyndra was politicized. Yeah, it was. You're right. Cylinder loss. It was 30 companies that created jobs and it became a catalyst for green energy growth. Yeah. So, okay. Last article. And again, this is more of a, this is just, it's a uh, op-ed. Uh, it's from agfundernews.com, which is really talking about food tech and ag tech. Uh, titled from April 13th. So this actually goes back a few weeks, but still, you know, well into the Ukraine crisis. We must scale U.S. ag tech innovation to fight the looming food and energy crisis. And for those of you with, you know, especially with families, we are starting to see horrible impacts of grocery prices, restaurant prices. You know, my wife and I are trying to be healthy and there's a way, motivation to do it. You know, DoorDash prices are going up. Everything's going up right now. 
I think it's going to get worse, especially for grains. So, you know, prices from cereal to breads is going to get worse as we start seeing the impact of the shutdown of the Ukrainian export of wheats and grains. Uh, 60 Minutes from uh, two weeks ago did a really good story, maybe last week, did a really good story about how bad this is going to be at the Port of Odessa. So what I liked about this article was it talks about the crisis that is in front of us right now. It talks about the fact that half of the world's sunflower oil, sunflower oil and 30% of the world's wheat is coming from Ukraine and Russia. Uh, I think Ukraine, I didn't know, is the fourth largest exporter of corn, which you know, I think in America we're a little more sheltered because we do a lot of corn, corn growth ourselves. But it ends optimistically. It's saying the technology is there and the funding is there in the green revolution space to really be smarter about how we're using ag tech to grow food sustainably. And one thing is just pick a couple of things I picked out of this article, using AI and agrobotics, they think there could be a 95% reduction in chemical use on farms when they're using a very targeted, you know, kind of a GPS technology-based targeting of when to use fertilizers or chemicals during the growth process. So obviously, and that includes nitrogen. Again, that's a great way for us to be more sustainable and to use precious resources better. So it's kind of a win-win. The other one I thought there was um, saying that you can use, there are more and more naturally derived fertilizers and growth compounds that can actually lead to a 50% reduction in what they call starter fertilizer. In, you know, especially this time of year as, as crops are getting planted or have recently been planted. So uh, Lucas and I were pre-gaming our, our conversation today and we discussed the fact that of course the Ukraine crisis is horrible, but, you know, if there's any good that can come out of it, I think it's going to start leading to focus on ag tech being so important for the U.S. and global um, agricultural industry. So another good article, it starts a little bit draconian, but it ends with toolbox of solutions that I think is very important. So very happy about the article and all my articles from today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this is almost like apocalyptic, this stuff, right? I mean, it's like, oh. Are you serious? We're going to lose, you know, like a third of the world's wheat. Oh my Lord. How's that going to work? Um, but yeah, then it does highlight. We, we need solutions to this, right? I was going to make a joke. I, I, I had seen another article that I passed on that manure was in high demand um, because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, there's plenty of jokes there that I'm probably going to pass over. <laughs> I always wondered why there wasn't a, a manure factory right across the street from uh, the U.S. Capitol. Because <laughs> you want to know about the world's greatest manure production. I think Congress over the last 25 years is probably in the top five. I mean, crap's in demand. What do you want me to say? Crap is in demand. Um, look, I, I, uh, again, uh, we shouldn't make light of this too much. No. Uh, it is very scary. Uh, I was talking to my hometown newspaper editor over the weekend. And honestly, one thing that I think we need to go back to is the concept of the victory garden. If anyone doesn't know that term, during World War II, people were encouraged to grow their own gardens. I used to, my father, uh, who was a green thumb and a half, and worked in a steel mill. So when he came home, he wanted to be outdoors. We used to have a garden at one point, it was probably about 15 by 25. And people would come over and go home with grocery bags of fresh produce that my dad was putting out, my family was putting out. We need to start doing that everywhere from people in urban areas on their terraces all the way to our backyards in the suburbs of America. Stop growing your grass, 
grass isn't good for the environment anyways, carve out some area. And if everyone did just a little bit of that, we were able to, you know, replenish vegetables for 10% of Americans by you know, not having prices go up in the grocery store, that would be a good thing. So there are very small micro solutions that we as individuals can do. Taking it up to like Congress subsidizing more technology through the universities and through agricultural science collectives like this, like uh, ag tech, to make the world a better place and uh, make us smarter in sustainable farming. Don't even get me started on grass. I don't. Can we change this American dream thing with the green grass and the white picket fence? I mean, where did that come from, anyhow? I mean, these these people sprinkle fertilizer, sprinkle fertilizer on their lawns, and they don't seem to realize that like more than half of it just runs off and goes into the water supply. I mean, come really? on. You know what, uh, California, I'm telling you right now, five years from now, nobody in California is going to have grass lawns because Probably. of the Powell situation. Lake Powell is down to like 30-year lows right now. Yeah. They're actually saying the pumping, the pumping infrastructure underneath Lake Powell is now exposed because water levels are so low. I saw that, yeah. So, so folks, you know, dandelions are about 10 times better than grass. And, uh, money, you know, transparency, we have a very small lawn. I haven't done any replacing of our grass yet. But, <laughs> I'm actually starting to think about putting um, at least 50% of our lawn and making it more, you know, oxygen generating plants as opposed to having, and since we live on the Hudson river, we make every effort to use as organic compounds uh, as possible because to your yeah. point, it goes right into the Hudson. It runs right off. Yeah. So okay. great article. sorry. I know it took a lot of time today, but these are worth talking about Lucas over to you. Yeah. So um, I'm going to skip that one for now. Uh, a lot of my articles tie into your articles, so this is great, right? So I did want to look into the whole California 97% renewables thing, right? So here we go. I got some help from my uh, my friend here, Michael Boyle at Canary Media. Did California actually hit 97% renewables in April? Yes and no, right? So this is from May 2nd. So he goes into the details of uh, exactly what we were talking about. So yes, they did hit 97%. It's a little more complicated than that. Let me see if I can find the graph. So there's the graph, right? So uh, here's the renewables output and there's the net demand. So we'll talk about that in a second. And you can see in, indeed at this point, it was 97% of, of total. Here's 100% on the right axis. Um, but notice that there's this big dip in the demand. So this is the electrical grid demand. So there's already a carve out here from distributed solar. So the number could be uh, even better than that if you put back in distributed solar. They don't have a measure on that at the CAISO um, because it just nets out um, from grid demand. So I wanted to talk about this too. So, so there could be confusion because Eric's article said we're at 18%. So how can California be at 97%? So this is a really good way to look at it. Um, yes, you're 97% at one point of the day. But you'll notice that other parts of the day, there's very little renewables uh, against demand. So if you take the area under this curve and then you divide it by the area under the black curve, then you get a number closer to 18%. So that's why I made that point that that's, that 18% is total energy and this 97% is instantaneous um, best of the day. So hopefully that clears things up. Well, be a little careful though, because this graph here, the baseline is at 20%, correct? So I think California itself has a much higher baseline of average, right? So I think your average number, and you're, you're definitely correct in pointing it out. It seems right. in 
probably to me would be 30, 35%. The 18% number was for the US, not for just for the US. So yeah, correct. So, so California would be higher, like 30 or 40%, maybe. Yeah. Right, right. And the other thing is, I think this article pointed out that the, the CAISO calculation doesn't count, count hydro. And uh, yeah, have some hydro as well. So the, so the overall number could actually be over 100. And yes, I think, uh, and if I, if I misled people last time, I certainly apologize. The 97% is a point in time number. It's more an accomplishment that that number has not been achieved. You know, prior, I think they said like three days prior was like 95%. That was the highest. So, uh, of course, a lot of work has to be done. But I think this is a great forerunner. Imagine if California's utility infrastructure had everywhere a four or five hour battery, then all of a sudden that 97% peak number could be very close to the seven o'clock peak demand. And then all of a sudden, you know, you really could have an average number that's satisfying the top of the duck. And so I think like this is a great starting point of discussion, uh, but you're absolutely right. We, we have to be very cognizant about how it's calculated, but at least the trends are heading in the right direction. Yeah. I just wanted to be clear because I think just the way people toss it around is confusing. And okay. So I wanted to go down here. So the, the problem I'm having is, okay. So if you're at 97%, what happens if you add more solar? Um you know, sadly, the thing is, you, you could just end up uh, dumping it, which is called curtailment, or what you're going to do is you're going to export it. So this this red bar here is the imports, exports uh, in and out of Kaiso, and there's your, your renewables output with your solar right in the middle. So you can see when the solar is strong, they just end up exporting. And then when the solar is, uh, renewables are weak, uh, they end up importing. So... This highlights the demand for a better transmission system, especially as you continue to add solar, which I believe they plan to do. Uh, you have to do something with this energy on the, uh, in the middle of the day. And it looks like they're probably going to export it because batteries are still quite, uh, quite expensive. And you can actually see their use here. Um, they did charge a little bit and then discharge in the evening, which is, I think, what the... Um, the main strategy is so that plays into my next article unless eric wanted to make a comment on this yeah no i was just gonna say really quick because most of our listeners are on the podcast not the video so uh the chart that lucas is looking at you know has battery at really still at very infant levels infantile levels of, of part of the clean tech demand curve if you will so batteries have a long way to go and we know the challenges of putting more batteries on the grid given resource constraints you know supply chain constraints yeah so we have to do something with this. And I, I don't know, probably about 10 years ago with the, with the NREL study, I, I agreed with them. I think transmission is the way to go. We need a massive transmission build out. And we've known this for 10 years and nothing's been done about it. So I'm very, very excited here as of May 3rd. There have been some movement on, it's kind of a, a national transmission strategy and how do we get that to happen? How do we get that to work? So one of the problems is, say, uh, the West has a lot of renewable output and the East doesn't, but the East has a lot of load. So you have to run all these transmission lines from West to East. But the, the regional transmission organizations in the center of the country, they don't see any of this. They don't see any demand they don't see any extra supply so why would they build a giant transmission line through their system um so this is there's a separation there between the people who have to build the transmission lines 
and the people are going to use it, right? So they're finally coming, I think, to the realization that we need some kind of national transmission strategy and or they're talking about a national transmission organization of some sort that would manage the transition system from a national viewpoint. And so there's a deep dive article from uh, one of my favorite sites, utilitydive.com. This is May 3rd. So it's a long article. I'm not going to go through it. I just basically said what it uh, talks about. There's a lot of interesting um, quotes and people and perspectives in here talking about how do we get this done? So I definitely recommend if, if you're interested in, in what's going to happen in the transmission system in the U.S., uh, this is definitely worth your time. Yeah, it's a, a very long article, uh, but it was a good article. And I'm going to go a little bit kind of crazy uncle here on you. But if you think about this, all the article reading about the water crisis in the Southwest, that could actually impact population growth. And it actually, actually could lead to depopulation, where people are migrating back to the Midwest, migrating back to places that are more affordable, have access to water. We're building all this incredible green infrastructure, uh, solar farms and wind farms in the Southwest. Well, if you have depopulation taking place, then the investors in those uh, green energy farms may have jeopardized their return payback based upon you know, less demand in 15, 20, 30 years. So the only way to hedge that and to mitigate that is to have transmission and have transmission that is effective connecting you to other parts of the U.S. where, where Lucas said you have the load. And, you know, I do think there is a reindustrialization of America taking place in onshoring and manufacturing. So there is going to be significant load demand in those industrial corridors. Like Intel is putting a plant in, in Ohio, and I believe they're also putting one in Arizona. So, like, you know, the load demand is going to increase. So why don't we have a smarter nation, nationwide transmission grid that can really satisfy demand where the demand is going to be? Yeah. I mean, they talk about something like the interstate highway system. We, we need the same thing for the electrical system, right? So, Amen. Amen. I'll maybe. Drink. I'll drink to that. <laughs> so I, I believe there's a public comment period or something. Uh, if you want to get involved, that's probably where I would go and what I would do. Very good. And my last article, I wanted to have something at least a little positive and uh, clean tech because we are clean tech <laughs> This is from Hydrogen Central, May 3rd. Uh, 2G Energy AG receives first hydrogen order in North America. So this is very exciting. Another thing to celebrate. Um, yeah, this uh, it's a European company. And I believe it also trades, if you're interested. Um, again, consult your uh, financial planner. Uh, and they've done hydrogen deals, uh, but not in the U.S., They've already sold, so they sell uh, combined heat and power units. So it would be on site in your building. It would burn hydrogen and it would produce heat for your buildings in the winter. And it would also produce power for your buildings. They've done these in European countries, Germany, Japan, and now finally they have one in North America. So this is very interesting to see. CHP is very efficient, right? Because there's no waste heat. You're using the waste heat from the power system. And it's also running on hydrogen. So this is great to see. I was very happy. Yeah, I love this too. You know, and uh, the phrase combined heat power has several different applications in, in industrial corridors. But generally, it, it means using everything that you can uh, generate power-wise and heat-wise in a specific technology. 
And I always believe the Europeans and the Asian um, companies and countries are better at this in the U.S. because they are they have um, population density issues and they have geographic issues, right? So they can't have big, you know, power plants that are spread out uh, over much more land and territory because they don't have it. So I always thought that the Europeans and Asians do a better job on these types of systems than we do, and it's out of pure necessity. So it's great that some of this is translating here because now those, those two main reasons, like I said, population density and lack of uh, viable land, now you add a third one, which is the need to be as energy efficient as possible for environmental considerations. So that's why this should be coming over to the U.S. and North America, and I thought it was a great article, and I'm happy to see it. Yeah, and remember, when you burn hydrogen with oxygen, you get water. So yeah. actually, come to think of it, what are they doing with that runoff water? I mean, you could use the water, too. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Uh, yeah. Unless there's something with the heat pump that's like not generating pure water with the waste heat. That's all I can think of, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I would have to look into the water quality. Yeah. Um, look, I thought these really good articles, and we definitely focused more on policy today uh, than we did on technology, but I think we needed to have a catch-up uh, issue or episode of our podcast that addressed it because there is so much being discussed right now. And again, it's a bit of a setup for elections coming up and for tackling, you know, these other geopolitical issues from a pragmatic standpoint. Um, you know, happy to see we've seen some articles, too, that talks about the Europeans really addressing uh, the gas turnoff that's taking place by the Russians turning the spigots off. And uh, there was an article, several articles about Poland and Bulgaria losing access to Russian natural gas. And they pretty much shrugged their shoulders because they've had a plan in place. And the plan is being executed on right now. So when you have a little bit better uh, forecasting and when you have a strategic planning based upon strategic resource cutoff, you don't have the disruptions that cause disruptions to quality of life and economy. So a lot of what we're bringing up today is trying to tell people to get ready for potential disruptions that we need to address. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, I tend to think that renewables will be a little more price stable. Um, and won't have such wild swings and, you know, that we see in the oil and gas industry, but, you know, and, and that's what we've seen with solar prices so far. Right. So mm, we'll see. Well, I mean, I think storage could be the answer for that, right? Cause that's where the volatility quotient is for renewables, less wind, less sun could equal volatility, but storage can get you over the hump, I think. Yeah. But you know, there's only so much lithium too. So. Well, you're right, and I, I shortchanged my statement, but there's a lot of technology looking at other solutions for batteries. Yeah. Especially on utility scale. Right, which goes back to my statement. We're still hoping, we're still betting on innovation, right? We're still betting on solutions. Right, right, so. right. Totally agree, totally agree. Well, a great episode, probably a little longer one than our, our last several, but worth every minute in my personal opinion. So, Lucas, how can people find us? Yeah, so we're on... I don't know, about a dozen podcast sites. We're, so we're probably on your favorite podcast site. You can just search for Pirates of Clean Tech and hit the follow or the subscribe button. And you can tell all your friends to do the same. This is the only place you're going to get hard-hitting analysis and news on what's going on in the clean energy world and clean tech. Uh, we're also on YouTube. If you want to follow along on the articles, search for Pirates of Clean Tech, click subscribe, and then hit the alarm bell. And you'll get notifications. That's right. And once again, just want to say thank you to all our uh, listeners and our fans. Uh, the support we get, the feedback we get is always amazing. And, uh, you know, anything we can do to help you, please send us questions. 
send us articles if you really want us to discuss something and, and you know, ideas for guests or whatever. We're, we're happy to be as democratic as possible with our fan base. So uh, I think with that, I want to say happy Mother's Day to everyone this weekend, uh, to all the mothers that really power children's future. And with that, I'm Eric Planey. I'm Lucas Finko. We are the Pirates of Clean Tech. <laughs> Love you, Mom. <laughs> you need to say, uh, you need to say, uh,